So I want us to begin this morning by using our imagination together. I want us to imagine that we are on vacation in a beautiful mountain location, let's say the Swiss Alps, and that we have been so fortunate as to score a hotel atop one of its many marvelous peaks. Meanwhile, I want us to imagine that we've landed a room with a window facing another peak just off in the distance, one that we have been told is breathtaking. And then finally, I want us to imagine that throughout our stay at this lush resort, an impenetrable fog has thus far obscured our view of that beautiful peak just off in the distance. We've been told it's there. We've been told it's exquisite. But we haven't yet seen it through the thickness of the fog. Do we all have that image? Okay, good. Now hold it. We'll come back to it. For now, I want to tell you three stories. Stories for my own life. At first, there will be no obvious thread connecting each story to the next, but I promise that in due time it will all become clear. You follow? Okay, story number one. When I was 17 years old, shortly after having done what we called in my tradition, rededicating my life to Christ, I found myself eating, sleeping, breathing the Bible. I'd think about my faith while at school, I'd read my Bible diligently at night, and I'd pray constantly for God to increase my stature as a disciple. Well, during this period of intense spiritual devotion, a period which I'll note lasted for about a month, I found myself thinking considerably about the world around me and about my faith's relationship to it, and I felt compelled for the first time, and I mean for the very first time in my life, to put my thoughts down in writing. Knowing me now, knowing how much I love to read and to write, this likely seems unnoteworthy. But prior to this moment, I'd never once felt compelled to write anything that wasn't an assignment for school. And truth be told, I didn't always feel compelled to do it even then. So this was a very foreign feeling for me, yet it was also a very intense feeling. And you have to understand, it wasn't what I wanted to write that felt so compelling. It was the fact that I wanted to write that felt so compelling. So here then was this new, intense, completely unexpected desire. And somehow I just knew at a gut level this was a spiritual desire that somehow I just felt deep down that God wanted me to write. Again, I was 17. I was new to spiritual devotion. 
I was zealous and enthusiastic. I was audacious and I was naive. And so here's what I did. Sitting on my bed with my Bible before me, I prayed these words or something here about. God, if you want me to write this, if this feeling I'm experiencing is indeed from you, then show me. When I open this Bible, show me that this is you speaking to me. Amen. Then with my eyes still closed, I flipped open my Bible, felt with my finger to a certain place on the page, then opened my eyes and read the words where my finger lay. I had opened the second chapter of the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, and here is what the words just above my finger said. For I am rousing the Chaldeans whose horses are swifter than leopards. No, I'm just kidding. It really said this. Write down this revelation and make it plain. It's a true story. It's the only story like that that I have. And that's the end of that story for now. But I'll return to it presently. Now story number two. About six years later, not long after having returned home from college, my grandfather asked me to drive him to Knoxville, Tennessee for a Bible study that he would be leading there. And to understand the rest of this story, you have to first know two things. First, that my grandfather was a wonderful Bible teacher who regularly got invited to come teach Bible studies all over the Southeast, and second, that I had taken him on many of these trips by this point. It's also helpful to know that at the time the story takes place, my grandfather was now in his mid to upper 80s, and he was very feeble and could not move from place to place without considerable help which meant that everything on these trips was a slog. He would insist on stopping at McDonald's for an ice cream cone no matter where we were going, no matter what time of day it was. And just to get him from the passenger seat to the cash register would take easily 15 minutes. And it would be this way negotiating him in and out of all locations and circumstances over the course of one of these trips. You also need to know that I adored and loved my grandfather and that he was and will always remain my hero. Okay, so there's the picture. Well, so it was that my grandfather asked me to accompany him, to take him, to drive him on this trip to Knoxville, and I did not want to go. Again, I loved my grandfather. I adored my grandfather, but I knew from experience how exhausting these trips were. What's more, they were boring. Oh, they were hopelessly boring. And I was 23 years old, and I had other much more exciting things to do with my time. In other words, I was very selfish. Well, despite not wanting to go, I nonetheless said yes to the request for what choice did I really have. And we set off for Knoxville. I, in my put-out state of mind, my grandpa with his typical kind and gentle disposition. 
And so we were about two hours into the trip when the need gasoline avatar appeared on the dashboard of his car, and so I pulled off at the next available exit. There, my grandfather gave me his credit card. I got out of the car to begin pumping the gas. And as I opened the tank and turned to reach for the handle, a man putting his own handle back onto the other side of our shared pump looked at me and said, that's your grandfather there? Surprised by the question from this stranger, I simply responded, yes. And the man nodded and simply said, you know, you're lucky. You better soak up all that wisdom while you can. And then just like that, he was in his own car and driving off, leaving me beside that pump all by myself, looking through the back window at my aged grandfather, my lifelong hero, sitting patiently there in the front seat, looking ahead through the windshield, oblivious to the exchange that had just taken place, his mind no doubt on the study that he would soon be conducting. And suddenly, like a punch in the gut, like a literal current through my brain, I realized, yes, 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 how lucky I am, how lucky I am. And you know what I did from there? I finished pumping that gas, and I got back in that car, and I drove the rest of the way to Knoxville, Tennessee, hanging on my grandpa's every word, soaking up every moment of that experience, hyper-aware of how lucky I was. Last story, and I'll keep it short. This time last year, and I mean like almost to the day, I was at the house that my church in Kentucky uses to feed homeless folks who are participating in our white flag winter relief ministry. This, by the way, is a ministry that we started in the winter of 2017 and it provides a warm meal and a hotel voucher for homeless persons on any nights when the temperature will be dropping below 29 degrees. Well, by the time the story in question happened, we'd been doing this for several years, and thus we'd cultivated a large base of community volunteers, both within our church and within the wider community, and had also gotten to know many of those we were serving on a personal level. Well, so it was that on the night of this story, I was walking around the room like I would do each night, greeting people and talking with them, when suddenly I looked up to an epiphany. I looked up and I saw a bank president, a university trustee, a circuit court judge, the chief medical officer of a hospital, and a city councilman sharing the same space as sitting there laughing and smiling and conversing with a recovering meth addict, a two-time felon, a married couple currently living under a bridge, a 29-year-old who had been to jail 28 times, 
and countless others just like them. There they were together, and there they were together. I looked up and I saw that. And that's the end of that story for now. Now I promise I will tie all these stories together in just a moment. And then I promise that I'll connect those stories to the image that we're still holding of that mountaintop resort where the fog is obscuring our view of that gorgeous peak in the distance. We all still have that image, right? I promise I'll connect all of this. Before I do, though, I want us to finally now take a look at our scripture lesson, which comes to us from Matthew chapter 17. This passage represents a pivotal moment in Matthew's gospel. This passage captures the moment when the energy that has been building behind Jesus' ministry takes a very sudden and sharp turn. You see, just before this moment, the disciples have for the first time called Jesus the Messiah. They have just for the first time realized with stark clarity who this Jesus really is, the Messiah on whom their people have been waiting for centuries. And in the wake of this realization, they have then just heard him say that as their Messiah, rather than conquer Rome and set Israel free, as they and everyone in their faith system had believed he would, They had instead just heard him tell them that he will undergo great suffering, be rejected by the religious leaders, be handed over to the Roman authorities, and then be crucified. Then he's told them that if they want to follow him, if they want to be like him, then they too must be willing to undergo suffering and rejection and even crucifixion. Not exactly the message they wanted to hear. And so we have to understand, this is what has immediately preceded our text for today. All before now had been going along so swimmingly. Jesus had been attracting these huge crowds and this massive following. Every there they went together in Galilee. The disciples had finally realized he wasn't just a charismatic figure, but was in fact their Messiah. And they'd been dumbfounded and amazed at the thought they were going to be his chosen entourage. Oh, all was on the proper course, they thought. But then suddenly everything turned on a dime for them. And he began telling them that his trajectory, and thus their trajectory, should they choose to follow, was headed anywhere but where they expected it and where they wanted it to go. So quite understandably, the disciples at this point in time are extraordinarily confused, utterly committed to Jesus, yet utterly confused by the new direction he seemed to be taking them in. And so it is that amid this confusion, Jesus now takes three of them, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain where suddenly before their very eyes, Jesus, for the briefest of moments, 
is transfigured into his future glorified form. For the briefest of time, the fully human Jesus, with whom they have traveled for three years, is transfigured into the glorified Jesus whom they will soon see, though they don't yet know it, on the other side of the resurrection. For the briefest of moments, that future reality arrives for them in the present. And standing with the transfigured Jesus are Moses and Elijah. Now, while this moment is no doubt extraordinary, and while there is so much theological substance to be unpacked here about what it means, about what it represents, for today what I want us to focus on is the disciples' response to the moment. Amazed by what they are seeing, awash in awe and wonder and certainty, Peter says, it is good for us to see this, Lord. Let us make dwellings for you here. In other words, let us capture this moment so as to render it permanent. But rather than Jesus answer this request, instead, a cloud suddenly covers the mountain and says, this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And then just like that, the transfiguration is over. And Moses and Elijah are gone. And now only Jesus. And what's more, now only the mundanely human Jesus. The Jesus they've always known. Now only he is once more standing before them. The moment is now over. The joy and the wonder and the certainty of the experience is now over. And so the passage ends with them walking back down the mountain, re-entering that difficult journey before them, silently questioning what they'd just seen and wondering what it all really meant. We all still together. Okay, let's start to connect these threads. This moment we've just discussed, the transfiguration of Jesus and his disciples' response to it, this is a very important passage for helping us understand what a life of faith looks like. What a life of faith is. Follow me closely here. What Peter, James, and John see in this passage is a sneak preview of the glory that is later to come. What they see is a window into God's coming kingdom. What they see is a snapshot of the glorified Jesus. What they see is the future momentarily arrived in the present. But then just as soon as they have seen it, it is gone again. And all that remains is the ordinary, the usual, the mundane. And as much as they'd like to capture it, God knows how much they wanted to capture it. They asked to build the dwellings there as much as they would like to be able to capture it. They're unable to do so.
Thus, they must move forward along their journey of faith, must move forward in their pursuit of God's coming kingdom with all of the suffering and selflessness and doubt that no doubt attends the way, all the while carrying with them the memory of this moment of beauty and awe and majesty and certainty. So what then we now ask does the disciples' mountaintop moment have to do with our own mountaintop moment? That is, with our imaginary hotel atop the Swiss Alps and with our view of that snow-covered peak in the distance. You're all still holding it, right? Well, let us now imagine that we are looking out that window that window that it's heretofore revealed nothing but endless fog. Let us imagine that we are now looking out that window when all of a sudden the fog temporarily lifts. And there it is. That big, beautiful, snow-covered mountain. The sun illuminating that peak like a beacon. Streams of blues and golds and purples and indigos refracting from it like off a gem. Do you see it there? It's majestic. And there it's been this whole time. And people have told us about it. People have told us how lovely it is. But until now, we've yet to see it. But now this. Now this. And so we look on with awe and wonder, with breathtaking wonder and with utter certainty about how exquisite it all really is. And then just as quickly, it's gone again. Just like that, the fog has returned and has completely obscured our view once more. And now all we can do is treasure our memory of that breathtaking view and tell others about just how exquisite it really is and know in our hearts that it does in fact exist and hope for the day when we see it again. Friends, that for Peter, James, and John is what the transfiguration was. For the briefest of moments they saw behind the fog, for the briefest of moments, they saw the exquisite mountain their prophets had for centuries been telling them about. For the briefest of moments, they saw God's kingdom come in its fullness. For the briefest of moments, there was nothing to doubt. But then just as suddenly, it was gone. And from there onward, they had to trust that their momentary glimpse of glory was trustworthy. And had to take on faith that it was a true picture of that which was yet to come. Follow that. Okay, let's close this out then. What then do these three stories that I told you earlier from my own life have to do with this? Pay close attention now because here's the point of the sermon. Each of those moments I told you about. The time against all odds I turned to the right passage in the Bible. The time that stranger told me to savor each moment with my grandfather. 
The time I saw that cross-section of people loving one another and laughing together at my church's white flag house. These are among a few fleeting moments in my life when the fog has temporarily lifted and the snow-covered peak has become for me visible. These are moments when the mundane world in which we generally live our lives has been momentarily transfigured for me into the coming kingdom of God. The undeniable sense that there is a power in the world greater than which I can imagine as I turn to that Bible passage. The sudden awareness as that man prompts me to value my time with my grandfather that even in such a cruel and unforgiving and self-serving world that goodness does conquer all. The sheer certainty of a coming kingdom when I see some of my city's most influential and highly regarded people sharing laughs with some of its least and vice versa. In these moments, I briefly see behind the veil. In these moments, I briefly glimpse the snow-covered peak in the distance. In these moments, I know with momentary certainty that everything that I have staked my life on, that the very faith that I have wagered my being on is true. In these moments, like Peter, James, and John, I see the glory. But then just as soon, like for Peter, James, and John, the vision's gone. And what lies before me is the same mysterious God and the same broken, fallen world and the same unequal society And I, like those disciples, have to from therefore trust the fleeting glimpse I've just seen and trust that it does point me onward toward a coming time when that temporary vision will become an eternal one. Let me close. The disciples' experience with the transfigured Jesus is highly instructive for our own journey as Christian disciples. We, like they, have these fleeting moments in our journeys of faith when everything seems so clear, when it seems obvious that God is with us and that love conquers hate and that goodness will win out and that joy will have the But those moments, those and beautiful, are altogether fleeting. And in their wake, we, like the disciples, have to come down from the mountain and resume our work as disciples in the midst of a mundane world that we know all too well. A world where it's anything but obvious that God is always with us or that love conquers hate or that goodness will win out or that joy will have the final word. We then, like those disciples, are left to do the daily work of discipleship down in the valley. All the while trusting in those fleeting moments when we've been atop the mountain. Trusting in those moments to sustain our hope. 
The transfiguration of Jesus then is our reminder as disciples that though the fog may be obscuring it, a glorious mountain does shine radiantly in the distance. And so today I write down this vision and make it clear, as Habakkuk says, that we would all hold fast to these fleeting moments in our own lives when the mundane world has been transfigured into the coming kingdom of God. So that these precious mountaintop moments, when we see the glory, would be for us reminders who live in the valley of the mountainous glory that is one day to come.